arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Lee Harvey Oswald killed no one at all. So the point is, it wasn't a question of being alone or with anybody. He had nothing to do with the assassination. John Kennedy was killed by a major force. The simplest way to describe it is a Central Intelligence Agency. If Garrison had succeeded in proving uh, that Shaw was uh, one of the ringleaders and that Shaw was connected with CIA, he would have pulled the plug on the conspiracy which then immediately causes the public to drop the Oswald idea. If you've got a conspiracy, you've got more than one man up in a window with an old gun. And they would have stared in the face the great big letters W-H-Y. Why was the president killed? The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way towards the trade mart. It, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Stemmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by. Just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The assassination of President Kennedy is an example of the blunt wielding of power. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, thank you Lord Acton. What happened to President Kennedy surely had an effect on me and my generation. You will see strange of corruption of power as episodes 4 and 5 unravel the mystery for Harry Cobb. Cobb has escaped Triton and is headed down through the atmosphere in Mars for his friend Inspector Patno on the surface. Episode 4, The Ice of Triton, Harry Cobb series, starts right now. Chapter 14 On the red window, two small, elongated, bright yellow dots trailed behind me at a distance of at least 100,000 kilometers. I piloted an old-style box tracer with unreliable control readings and a nearly depleted fuel supply through the Martian atmosphere. Box tracers were no more than gray nanoskinned cubes with small portals, and were meant for planet-to-moon travel, yet, with the proper fuel conservation, longer journeys were possible. This crate had an oily odor that had bothered me since I left Ganymede, and the overall air mixture wasn't good either. With less than a week to find answers, I now feared for Angelique's safety. Given O'Neill's assistance and some time, I might provide Levinsky what he wanted, but that meant directly challenging Alder and Severinsen. I decided to implement a plan Pat Note and I had concocted years ago. Although I had taken Levinsky's tracer to Ganymede, I used Davy Lally, an old bureau connection in the Vivo sector, 
to have a box tracer delivered by freight tram within hours of my arrival to the tracer port at the central square in northern Galileo Regio. It was risky accelerating toward Mars, trapped in a craft not much larger than a man and fueled by a modified methane purity. I had done it once for a shorter distance, but I was younger then. This flight was troubling from the start. I had first wondered whether Lally's mixture was impure or maybe too rich, but I had no choice when I lifted vertically from the port and was hoisted into orbit by a pleasure craft. My final acceleration from the Jovian moon to Mars was accomplished by an odd catapult device on the deck of a cargo vessel bound for the outer solar system. I arranged my rendezvous with Patnoe on Mars after the catapult. Our plan, formulated when I worked at the Bureau on a mission against rogue gangs in the Martian domes, involved having a code programmed into John Patnoe's zip. It was almost too simple. Code 7. I'd used Code 7 four times in our long association together. This was the fifth time. I responded to his reply by simply putting in the date and time, which was returned within an hour of my being catapulted. Twice my life had been spared using this plan because I had found sanctuary. The two pinpoint dots on the tiny window did not provide a clear picture as to who or what was behind me. My eyes shifted when a red hebon flash. The fuel depleted. I yelled, then gulped. I could not break the zip channel void. Lally, you stupid idiot. I checked the onboard contents on the zip window. A bright green drogue floater was stashed in the upper panels. Trying to extricate a floater, compacted for years, out of the upper panels was a marginal proposition. The brown Martian landscape was now clear 60 kilometers up, and in the distance the scattered silver geodesic domes reflected the sunlight. I shook my head and continued to curse Lally. My heart pounded against the T-suit. I inflated the interior and pulled up the visor. I cleared the red digits and obtained suit status. At least the suit didn't leak. The box was on course, but I had no maneuverability except for push thrusters. The elevation was now listed in meters instead of kilometers. I spotted the remote, chalky brown runway, smooth and cleared through the smattering of rocks, and tucked against the craggy, brown mountain ranges 647 kilometers from Patnode's Livingston Dome. The brighter Martian skies were a welcome sight after the dark confines of Station 32, but at this speed, trepidation encircled my every thought. I risked being monitored, especially by the two crafts behind me if I tried to call Patnode. I glanced at the upper panels and waited till I was lower in the atmosphere. As the red digits spun before my visor, I pushed the tab on the front window. Panels were still in place. Stupid. I shook the visor and then used my glove hand to depress the green perforated panel. The Martian surface was now perilously close. The three domes, corrugated and silver gray, were visible along the runway. I bashed the panel. After an initial whooshing sound, the floater twine shot skyward. But the floater never extended. Calling Patno would make little difference now. My breathing was loud and clouded the visor as the packed green floater twisted above me. I had a weightless sensation as the craft produced a high-pitched whine as it spun out of control. Through the atmospheric barrage, I heard a louder rumble. Maybe the box cube was breaking up. Patno would witness the crash from below. Hitting the ground at this clip would be instant death, and I would feel nothing. 
the whining, loud enough to hurt my ears, slowly dissipated and the air no longer swished by me. Somehow, I was slowing. Through the portal, I saw a black land tracer had magnetically captured the box. We were descending vertically. A few smaller tracers were aligned a hundred meters toward the center runway. More dust spewed over the rock-littered surface, like a curtain rising on a stage performance. The can rocked gently on the runway, the lock released, and the tracer hummed away from me. The floater fabric slowly spread over the dirt. The shadows from behind the third dome were deep on this Martian afternoon. Within seconds, the rovertow field wrapped my ship, and the can was dragged slowly across a smoother surface toward the three domes. I spotted John Patnode's white crop in the lower portal span. As we met again, this time on a remote Martian plane, Felix Alder was about to assume the position of commissar, making him the most influential man in the solar system. Everything was quiet out here, and Alder's power and force had no relevance. As the sun dimmed inside the locks, I scanned a green corrugated geodesic network tapering upward to a pale green sky. I was only inside for a few minutes when the air stabilized. My husky, white-haired friend, wearing a red suko and white neckliner, stood on the gray silcoplast. I ordered the onboard zip to slide the forward shield upward. The dome air was clean and dry. Patnall strove forward, as if he were in a security review. He squinted and looked at my unshaven face. Interesting, Interesting entry. entry. I tried not to smile. Had you scared. You're just lucky my tracer pilot is still here. I attempted to dislodge myself from the craft, but the cramps tightened in my calves. Oh, wow. Trouble? Yeah, trouble, I said, finally standing. And by the way, you look like hell. Gee, thanks, John. How are you? I grabbed my zip when it hummed. In better shape than you, Harry. Are you all right? I staggered, but quickly regained my gait on the silcoplast. Then I checked the message. We're back on Triton. What is it you wanted me to do? Tough to get old. Important message? Good God, she might be able to do it. Harry, forget about your personal life. That's not it, John. My leg muscles tightened and I closed my eyes for a second. Where's O'Neill? I bent over to stretch the leg cramp. In hiding, I took a Turcot planet tracer out here. Little help from Desmond Turcot. I find that hard to believe. Apparently he's working with O'Neill. Why? Must be something in it for him. I need O'Neill's help. I stood and flexed my shoulder and arms. Then I inputted as we walked. I've been taken off planet. I need you to locate a special zip and transmit data to the following address. 35X-9875 MBU. Is that zip secure? Yes. I looked up. But I believe I'm being trailed. I'm sorry. Could be cargo ships. I can't tell this far from Livingston. He motioned me across the dome. Very clever move, taking the BT. Clever? That half-brained David Lally almost killed me. Lally? Wasn't he an ancillary construct on Titan? At one time, the fool didn't top off the methane. Is that what happened? I'm not hanging around to figure out. What about O'Neill? In the Solace Canyons with those Canterbury monks. Olympus Mons. Yes, it's called the Sanctuary. He's afraid for his life. The Bureau men have questioned me four times, Harry. I don't understand what's going on here. I put my hand on his shoulder. Maybe you don't want to know, John. His blue eyes moistened. 
Tell me. Then I nodded in the green-tinted dome light. I think Alder and Severson may have killed Nevis. What? Patnold stopped and his face tightened. Alder's done a lot of things, but... To kill the Commissar? Nevis had degenerative retinitis. The facts point to a murder, but I'm not sure. I have data and a C-zip in a wine cellar under the Matterhorn Hotel on Triton. You're investigating Jen and Balkan's death. How does one go from that to who killed her? I don't know that either, but I need to verify something. Sure, he said as our boots echoed across the Silcoplast. I need to know Mark's financial status. Apparently, he's depleted his and Jenna's post-droid bands. That makes no sense. He's as straight as a pulse of me. I know. That's why I find the thought unsettling. I look my old friend in the eye. How do I get to O'Neill? You need to stay out here for a few hours. You can clean up and shave in the barracks. Use the Turcot Tracer to go to Mons. I nodded as we climbed a long ramp that overlooked the flat plains and a few hills on the horizon. The rear mountains cast long shadows across the rock-strewn dirt. I received another text. Sure. At the Matterhorn. We're at the Matterhorn. Excuse me, I said as I typed. Not a problem. Text me when you get back to the Matterhorn. I looked up. John, at this juncture, Alder would kill us in a second. The Bureau will send more people out to question you. I'm going with you. What about Gwen and the rest of the family? They think I've gone for the day. I'm supposed to be back at Livingston tonight. Again, he placed his hand on my shoulder. If I go back, and this is as big as you say, they'll do whatever it takes to break me, including threatening my family. I nodded once. It's one of those times when I knew I was 100% correct. I'm going to brief you on everything. Our one hope is O'Neill. He still has connections. Yes, he does, said Patno, gripping the rail, and he stared across the desolate shadows. And I know one thing. I stroked my beard whiskers. What's that? It's us against them. Balder and Severinsen engineered Nevis' death. We're going to have to prove it. A proof that he ordered Bernie Sorrell to kill Jenna. Either way, it's us against them. Two hours later, I strutted from the cleaner room. Patno was alone, backdrop by the jagged hills in front of a small zip stationed atop the hangar dome. He glanced over his shoulder as I crossed the tower. What do you hear, John? Those two ships have separated, and they're not coming here. Well, that's damn good news. But there is a bureau-wide alert for you, Harry. I'm honored. He remained with his back to me and listened through an earpiece. It's not public, but they want to question you. For what? He turned and looked up. Plotting the death of Jenna Belkin. Now they're framing me. It's an excuse to kill you on sight. Another happy thought. He sent me in there, used me to find out what what my take on it. Always. Wait. Patno looked over my shoulder. Who are you talking to? You. I just walked into the lobby. Am I safe? I looked into his blue eyes. She's a woman I've been seeing. Honestly, Harry, we're in the middle of this whole thing with Alder, and no, she's our last hope. She's on Triton, in the Matterhorn. There's a C-zip with sound etchings and biogenic data wedged in the rafter of that wine cellar. It would incriminate Alder and Severinsen. I'm having her send the data to O'Neill's secure zip. Incredible. Other people use agents. You use your lover. 
I smile. Yeah, that sums it up, John. Pat no shook his head as I text. Yes, you are safe. Go down to the third level. Wine cellars under the restaurant. Fourth cellar, marked centuries. Fourth row on your right. In the rafters is a C-zip, like a regular zip. Send all the data to 35X9875 MBU. Alert me when the transmission is completed. Well, I said looking up from my zip, keep your fingers crossed. Would this really incriminate Alder? I think so. Alder paid off Jenna all those years. He's cleaning up the loose links by sending you in there to find out what was known about that as well as to see if there's anyone connecting him to the tracer explosion. I think you found out more than what was required. You found out that Mark wanted droids from Alder to keep his mouth shut. I think Alder called Sorrell. Levinsky's right about that. Something isn't right. I can't put my finger on it. You said that C-zip in the wine cellar showed that Mark killed Sorrell, which I find just plain wrong. Sounds like Mark found out Alder ordered Sorrell to place the Pytoids. Or Alder needed Sorrell out of the way. Pat Note's stomach growled. Hungry? This stored container food leaves much to be desired. I could go for a chilled dish of strawberry cheesecake. And blended jaffron. Exactly. I have another theory about Mark. Oh? I leaned forward. Mark fled into the ice mountains after that. I don't trust Levinsky as far as I could pulse him. Maybe he killed Jenna. Maybe he's just trying to expose whatever Alda did to keep him out of power. We need O'Neill to sort this through. I can't believe Alder would take the chance on killing Nevis. Pat Note furrowed his bushy brows as I spoke. Somebody's lying, John. As tiny as the tracer cabin was, it was spacious compared to the box tracer. We had placed the BT in a storage compartment back at the runway. The pilot of this craft, who was up front behind a slider, and was relying on zip terrain scans over Mons near the Solace Canyons. 133 west by 18 north, said the pilot on the C-zip. You know, I recall taking my kids up here when they were young. They were pretty excited, Pat Note said to my left. We should have enough fuel to reach Mons. Should have? You came very close to the end this afternoon, my friend. I prefer never to look at how close I came to anything. Pat Note studied his zip. There are agents all over Livingston. Does that surprise you? If Severinsen and Alder are guilty, they must be frantic. I must say there is some satisfaction in that. Are you going to contact the Solace Canyon via zip? No. Our signal will go right to the main catacombs. And it's up to one of the monks to disseminate it. They live a very simple lifestyle, but sheltered. Smart move by O'Neill, being up here. Rocky Plains whip by below. He should be retired. He doesn't need this. None of us need this. I laughed out loud. <laughs> You're damn right, John. Thirty-three years ago, we were all summoned to a bureau conclave. We were all worried that the Earth would not relinquish power to the outer colonies and planets. I remember. We went out to the local lunar establishments in Copernicus, and we were quite hungover. Do you remember who didn't go out that night? Yes, I do. Felix Alder. Very good. I don't know whether Severinsen was around at that time. I believe he was in special forces on Earth. You may be right. Alder was kissing up, even back then. My zip buzz. You. There are people waiting down here. May not be able to get inside. Damn, I said and closed my eyes. Patno looked over my shoulder. 
That's not good. She has to get that data. I would have given it to Levinsky, but I don't trust him. No, you couldn't have trusted him. Believe me, Jacob Levinsky is the smoothest talker alive. I started texting again. You, don't put yourself at risk. Get out of there if it's dangerous. I was teary-eyed as I peered into Pat Note's blue eyes. Severinson will track us down, John. I held my old friend's wrist. It all boils down to what this clever woman with the texter does on distant Triton. Maybe O'Neill has something. I hope so. Chapter 15 As we reached the Tharsis region, the earth-toned Martian Mons rose above the plateau ahead. The ship banked in the late afternoon light and trailed the top of this volcanic mass, tapering upward to a darker, streaked area. I imagined lava oozing over the edge in some earlier epoch, like fudge overflowing a cooking pot. Chris Peabons brightened along the darker terrain streaks. I have our signal repeating. They should be getting it soon, I would think, said Patnold. He spoke into the zip. Lieutenant, we'll circle the caldera. Yes, Inspector. My grandson thought that caldera looked like an A-human life form. Two big eyes, an angled pointy nose, and a smiley mouth. I flattened my nose against the cold portal silcoplast as we zoomed upward. The caldera was sharply carved, elongated with a circle on either side, as Pat noted said. There were wrinkles circling the cheek, and the chisel area below did resemble a mouth. Tommy called it Sir Galahad. Well, Triton is replete with A-human sightings. My friends, the Balkans, love that stuff. I say, if A-humans had been to the inter or beyond, where's the evidence? Right. Of course I'm right. I smiled as his zip sounded. Patno pushed down on the window screen. All right, we have clearance to land in the forward dome port. Bring her in, Inspector, asked the pilot. Yes, bring her in. He looked me in the eye. I don't know how we're going to get out of this one, Harry, old boy. Me either. We maneuvered above the deep silver geodesic dome, positioned where the sculptured caudera mouth formed. At this height, as night overtook the plains, a plethora of hebons twinkled within the deep distant shadows. The tracer floated through the open locks into a gridwork of catwalks, S-hebons, and girders. The outer doors slid quickly, and the air bursts filled the locks. We rolled along the gray tarmac in the dim light. A few crafts were lined inside the brighter docks. My stomach was knotted like the surrounding dormant volcano escarpment. Why isn't she text back? Maybe she got out of there like you requested. This isn't good. No, it isn't. Using a civilian, Harry. Isn't like I had options, John. I spotted O'Neill, standing with a tiny white-haired man in a long gray suko down to his knees. Who the hell is that? Patnoe shrugged his shoulders. The tracer nudged towards center port. Patno continued pounding me about Angelique, but I shut him out as I watched through the portal. O'Neill talked with the older man, alternately placing his hand on his shoulder, as if he were trying to convince him of a point of view in some vital matter. O'Neill's hair was grayer, but his expressive square-jarred face and piercing brown eyes were still distinctive. He glanced at us and kept talking. We docked in place, and the side-ramp motor hummed as it extended to our hatchway. I raised my brows and faced Patnode, but neither of us said anything. Patnode rumbled down the aisle and told the pilot he would stay on Mons until further notice. When we reached the open hatchway, 
the little man in the gray robe, stood a few steps behind O'Neill. It was just like O'Neill to devote full attention to someone. I called it leadership. His eyes caught mine. He squinted slightly and then nodded in some odd gesture of respect. Then he stepped up the ramp, meeting me halfway with a hefty handshake that was quickly transformed into a bear hug. Well, I'd like to shake the hand of the man who avoided a cobalt assassin team. You mean a Severinsen assassin team? Rekondor Vasquez, this is Harry Cobb and Inspector John Patino from Livingston. Vasquez had black eyes and a row of little white rounded teeth. Gentlemen, he said in almost a French accent as he shook our hands. John? O'Neill said to Patinault, squeezing his hand. When I looked him square in the eye, everything both of us had ever been through together over the years focused into a feeling reserved for no other man. He took one step back and then spoke clearly, as if he were briefing new recruits. Gentlemen, we are renegades from our own government. We stand outside an internal conspiracy. Well put, but unsettling. You know my adage. It may be an impossible situation, but it has possibilities. Exactly. Patnot smiled. I need to brief you, I said, unable to contain myself. O'Neill half-smiled. Right down to business. He put his hand behind Vasquez. Excuse us one moment, Reckondor. No problem, O'Neill. I walked with O'Neill back along the ships. Patno conversed with the Reckondor as if he had known him for years. When we were out of range, O'Neill furrowed his dark brows. What do you got? A C-zip with an extensive data. I scanned a habitat where a man named Bernie Sorrell was murdered on Triton. I have organic and genetic scans that would be very incriminating to those who killed Jenna Belkin. Who do you think killed her? I think Alder and Severinsen ordered her death. Agreed. He paused, as if he were trying to gather his thoughts. I have strong evidence, albeit from a dead man, or I should say, a murdered tribal chieftain in Africa, that Alder needed Jenna dead. I want to know more about that. Rekondor is actually my contact on this. Really? I glanced back at Patno and the Rekondor. John, I also have sound etchings. If we could unravel the etchings, we might hear more about this plot. O'Neill nodded. Where's the C-Zip presently? I exhaled and pressed my lips. Hotel Matahon, wine cellar. On Triton? Well, damn, Harry, I don't have to tell you, we're out of time. Severinsen has vessels... Approaching Mars. They'll track us down. We can't stay on Mons for long. Understood. I have an operative who's outside the wine cellar as we speak. She's having trouble getting in there. Is she going to transmit the data? Exactly. With the stat zip? I'm waiting right now for confirmation that she got in there. Can you trust her? I sure as hell hope so. O'Neill squinted. Why do I think she's more than an operative? You know me too well. Then he smiled and shook his head. Leave it to you, Harry. I hope the hell she does what you want, because my evidence is hearsay. I'll elaborate at dinner. I've contacted an old adjutant in Livingston to bring this to court, but without solid evidence, and with Alder being inaugurated within this week, I'm not hopeful. I don't have to tell you that our lives are in danger. I checked my zip for a return message. John, our lives have been in danger for 27 years. I stared into the long spans overlooking the night landscape beyond the port. Many dome hebons were scattered under the stars atop the caldera rim. 
I was so accustomed to seeing the ice mountains and even more addicted to speculating about the waters of oblivion. O'Neill lifted his goblet. The chandelier candles reflected over the gold surface as the Requendor toasted him in his mission to foil Felix Alder's ambitions. Then his face turned sullen and his voice sedate. Now, Usami Regulton. Usami Regulton lived in a village in Iskaswana all his life. Never went off earth. Regulton was shot by a pulsar. A single burst last Saturday as he was preparing to leave earth. He was to testify against Felix Alder and Phil Sevens. Just what did he know? I asked and sipped the white wine. The Recondor's clear enunciation had a sincerity that I liked. Mr. Regulton worked with Jenna Belkin 23 years ago, and the late Commissar Nevis was a world economic trade representative. Regulton formed a deep friendship that lasted over 30 years. His voice quivered. Alan was in perfect health, but he became increasingly convinced that Phil Severinsen and Felix Alder had used high-energy particles to try and kill him. Wouldn't that have been detected? asked Patnall. Oh, they used minute amounts, said O'Neill, in his fitness cell. Every morning, Alan would run on his simulator. I have evidence that there were multiple devices implanted around the cell. What evidence? I asked bluntly. The devices were impounded, interrupted O'Neill. They were in place for years while Nevis exercised, and we have a direct witness to this, but the devices are all gone. Mark Belkin may have taken the devices on behalf of Phil Severinsen. Oh, come on, I protested. Harry, I know the Belkins are your old friends. I spun around to O'Neill and then peered over at the Requendor. My brow tightened, followed by the rest of my face. Look, I'm aware of the payments to Jenner and Alder, but Mark killing a direct witness? What are you talking about, John? He knew Regalton because they lived there at one time, and he was familiar with the simulator. Plus, he had full security. Why? Why would Mark Belkin do such a thing? Janet was about to retire, and Mark had lost huge droid bands in the post-droid funds. He needed money, but didn't want his wife prosecuted for the payoffs. He just wanted to retire. But he had no money, and his wife was about to be indicted. Unbelievable. And I would probably add, Janet is dead. Probably? I'm not so sure she was on that tracer. Now, how do you know that? asked Patnall. I know that Mark Belkin called Bernie Sorrell. I had the zip cones on that. Took weeks to get those records. Levinsky thinks Alder Severinsen contacted his man Sorrell. O'Neill raised his right brow and half smiled. Then you talked to Levinsky. Good, good. I met with him. Levinsky tends to believe what he wants to believe. I'm sure he'd like nothing better than Felix Alder to be out of his way. Less competition. The reality is, Mark Belkin called Sorrell. question is, why would he call a man like Sorrell to plant pytoids to kill his own wife? Okay, I said, folding my arms across my chest. Mark may have killed Sorrell in that Station 32 habitat. How do you know this? Speculation now, but the forensic evidence in the CZIP. I shook my head and my fist tightened. Mark had lost his post-droid bands, but to say that was a motivation for killing his wife. Harry. She may not be dead. When I was in prison on Triton, I was told a rumor about Mark being in the Ice Mountains. Something about the waters of oblivion. Never heard of that. O'Neill nodded as he took it in. I have no doubt that Mark called Sorrell. Whether Alder or Severinsen were involved certainly will have to be covered. 
my dear friend Jacob. You're being sarcastic. I am. He's been known to confabulate on occasion. What would be Levinsky's angle in this? To kill Jenna in order to prevent being prosecuted for all his payoffs to resources. Here's the fallacy in that. There's no way on Jupiter's shores that Levinsky would take action with no prosecution pending. Exactly. Prosecution, but not him. Which leaves Belkin, Alder, and Severinsen, the Requendor added. I stepped back from the group and walked a few feet away. And it leaves us here in a monastery atop Olympus Mons. No means to prove anything, unless we start receiving data from Triton. I can exhaust what contacts I dare to, said O'Neill from in back of me. Division 5 needs to be activated. Division 5? Prosecution of crimes within the intrasolar system. O'Neill, with all their assuming control as commissar, who can possibly prosecute him? First we meet with adjutant merit. All this criminality is incredible. I think it goes farther than that. Do we really want to taint our process of government? This is a government elected by planetary bodies. To think this egregious act has taken place will undermine the very nature of our system of government. I set down the wine goblet. Nor do we allow Alder to do this. O'Neill nodded, but looked out the portal into the caldera. Alder is inaugurated in six days. Right now, he does not have total power. There are three people I can count on inside Division 5 that would bring this forward, but not without Mark Belkin and possibly his wife. They're both dead, there's little hope. And we use whatever evidence your mystery CZIP contains. How did you know all this, John? I heard from my friend in Africa. By then, Nevis was already ill. One of the exercise simulators malfunctioned. Very clever. The Requendor interjected. The devices were removed and placed in storage in the town. It wasn't until Nevis was dying that McGalton put this together. The devices are gone, but the metal objects within the room show evidence of frequency 757. With the medical reports and talking to Nevis, McGalton figured it out. Death by slow concentration of frequency 757 ravine emissions. So what did Mark do once he disposed of the devices? My best guess is Jenna told him to forget about it, which was prudent since he lost his post-droid band. We have zip lines showing he received droid payments. He overrode the records, but it was traceable. O'Neill gripped the rails and looked outward into the night. Then he turned back to me. I'm guessing, but I think he tried to pressure Alder for additional droids. Not a good move. I gritted my teeth. He could have called Sorrel to either fake their deaths or Alder had them killed. I just don't know. But I also have records of Phil Severinsen traveling to Africa at least five times over the past four years. He did. Absolutely. Maybe to install the devices. But I'm sure he didn't walk in there with a work order from Alder. O'Neill grinned. This is true. So Mark and Jenna may be dead. Or one of them. Or both. They could be in hiding, which makes total sense. I can't contact Division 5. I have to start with merit. As a matter of fact, if I'm even seen, well, I'll be killed. You face Patton on. I need to meet with Desmond Turcotte, John. I winced at the very mention of his name. Why Desmond? Harry, I know the Turcots have always been at cross-purposes with your dealings here on Mars. But he's a powerful man. 
And what's even better, he never liked Felix Alder and his nasty habit of pressuring money out of local businesses. Desmond will need to be our liaison in Division 5. He can act in his name of his own business and present evidence to my contacts. We will circulate the evidence once it's in the legal system, but I need Mark Belkin. I stroke my chin. If he's alive, we'll have to find that out. Without his testimony, Alder can wiggle out of this, and he will. We had better hope he's alive. What about Levinsky? Do we give him the information? O'Neill looked at me as he thought. No, I've never trusted him. He could go make a deal with Alder, for all I know. Gentlemen, we have six days until the inauguration. We meet Desmond on his Phobos operation in the morning. There's something in this for him. Mining interest. Where? Nice place, Harry. You know it well. It has untapped lower-level elements. Just no capital to get it out. Where? The Ice Mountains of Triton. After dinner, we retired to an upper chamber with two other Requins and Requindon Vasquez. Patnot's animated conversation about Martian issues stymied the two monks. I was quiet, my face compacted as I gripped my zip and waited word from Angelique. I stared down into Olympic Monza's eye-like hebons along the caldera room. O'Neill was gregarious with a requindor and remarkably cool with the burgeoning pressure. I've always believed, requindor, that the idea of eternal justice is never enough to thwart crime. You don't know that? Why is that? Vasquez thought for a moment and then spoke loudly. Because, because you've never been dead. <laughs> I hadn't heard O'Neill's laugh in years. Even Patno turned from his dessert and chuckled. Well, Requindor, I'll take your word for it, said O'Neill, still smiling. You. I've entered the cellar. By the great Barsoom Dome, I said, leaping to my feet. She's actually in the wine cellar. O'Neill, Patno, and the Requindor stood and raced around the furniture. Interesting code, said O'Neill with a gleam in his eye. We'll leave my personal life out of this. Thank God. We don't have all night, said Patno. Funny, John, I said as more words filled the window. I have it. Preparing to transmit address. I fear I'm being watched. O'Neill held an oblong purple-hued zip. I'm ready. I walked over to the portal and leaned on the railing. I regretted putting Angelique in danger and stared at the flickering hebons beyond the upper caldera ridges. Mark's first message when I was on the cruise liner repeated in my head. He said he was on Triton and wouldn't leave until he knew the truth. Mark knew everything and a double deal with Levinsky and Alder before he sent that message. I naively believed my old friend, but then he or somebody lured me onto Triton. That move had Alder's blessing, and Mark's fearing for his life was another confabulation. He even suckered me with his habitat coordinates into my zip. I looked over my shoulder. O'Neill held his zip and talked to the Requindor. Patnote slowly meandered across the tile and put his hand on my shoulder. You feel betrayed. That is exactly how I feel. He nodded. You know, Harry, sometimes people get themselves in predicaments. John, I... Wait. He pointed his finger. She messed up all those years, and he messed up with the post-droid bands. But they were backed into a corner. I have no respect for people with excuses. He bit his lower lip and didn't argue. I know. I know. 
O'Neill stood upright and held his zip with both hands. I have something here. It's coming in. I ran across the tiles with Patino right behind me. Is it her data? I can't tell, but it is shielded. That's got to be it, I said, looking down at the black letters indicating a priority shield transmission. 30% had been uploaded. Sound etchings require more than a zip, Harry. You may have full use of our facilities here, O'Neill, said the Requendor. Thank you. Everyone realizes what this means. Regalton is dead, and witnesses are few and far between. Knowing what was inside that habitat could be critical. I don't dare send this to Merritt Zip. Savage said we'd intercept it in a second. Let me only say that I have a plan for our friend, Mr. Severinson. It all depends on Desmond Turcotte. I know Desmond very well. How much is in it for him? Eighty percent, said O'Neill, staring at the zip window. He then peered at me in the dimmer light. Yes, he'll be taken care of, and he hates Phil Severinson. Uh, who doesn't hate Phil? asked Patino. Alder, I said, but only Patino laughed. <laughs> I won't give details, but in case we get caught. But just bear with me, said O'Neill. Okay, I have it. Do you wish the use of the zip catacombs? asked the Requendor. Please. The upper area was ringed by clear silcoplast. The view extended over Mons to the surrounding brown-dusted plains into the darkening skies. While O'Neill worked within the small catacombs for the complex, I grew more concerned that Angelique had not text anything else. He first separated the sound etchings from the forensic scans. O'Neill was not sure that these catacombs had the capacity to unravel the impression left on the C-Zip. In less than an hour, we had the genetic scans of everyone inside that habitat, but current communication monitoring indicated Severinsen was moving out additional traces into Mars' orbit. I knew he'd be thorough, said O'Neill. His hand tightened and his knuckles whitened as he shook his head. I think we're safe here. O'Neill was now on the main line and establishing a connection to the Livingston catacombs. What are you doing? We have profiles of everyone in that habitat and no way to match them. Do you really think we want a chance matching profiles, John? I asked as O'Neill linked into the Livingston catacomb. I think we need to know who is there. It will all be viewed as sanctuary catacombs connecting with Livingston. It has nothing to do with us. I know Phil as well as you. He has an unmatched chain of command. And he's smarter than either one of us. Speak for yourself, quipped O'Neill, and I grinned. We may not get this chance again. What, just to nail Alder? No. O'Neill stood and watched the blue connecting beam on the window. Harry, knowing who was in there might help us figure this out. And figuring this out will stop Alder. Okay. You still disagree. I do, but I trust your judgment. Thank you. For the next 45 minutes, we waited for the return data from Livingston. One of the Requidors appeared in the hallway just when the information began flowing. He shouted at O'Neill, loading the information into his zip. I have monitored seven dome levels from around the planet and sent it to the zip cones. There's chatter about the Bureau being concerned that Inspector Patinode is not at Livingston. They'd be all over it, John, if he were back there. They have questioned his wife and daughter. Do they have his flight plan? asked O'Neill. No, sir, but they were speaking in the orbital tracker about your leaving the Earth moon. They know you were headed for Mars. Philip Severinsen is running the operation here on Mars. 
If Severinsen is here, they must suspect both of us are here, working together. O'Neill scraped his lower teeth around the corner of his mouth. Anything else? Isn't that enough? They are scanning the planet, but that will take time. And they are also monitoring all frequencies. That is all. Thank you, Requendor. My pleasure. I will continue monitoring, he said, turning, and he headed down the narrow hall. No, thank you, said O'Neill. He watched the Requendor leave, and then he turned to me. Phil Severinsen. Chapter 16 O'Neill pushed the communication link on his zip, and then spun the recliner toward Patino. John, I want you to link through your private zip. To my office? No. In your habitat. Patinode's white bushy brows edged upward. I'm not shielded for private use. Doesn't matter. They won't trace private right now. All I need is the profiles. Patinode leaned over and inputted his habitat zip. Good luck. O'Neill looked at me and smiled. Then he leaned forward. He has the connection through the sanctuary. I exhaled and walked over to the portal. The first stars were now shining in the deepening blue sky. I could not see Neptune without a viewer, but I was concerned now. Even if Angelique left the cellar, she would have texted something back to me. One side of me regretted using her to get the information, while without the data, O'Neill would not be tracking down those inside the Station 32 habitat room. Here's the genetic breakdown. Does the name Nora Kachenkov mean anything to you? I stared out at the caldera shadows. A Levinsky assassin. Makes sense. Mark Belkin. Well, we know that. A Frank McNally. Running check on him now. Severinsen would kill us without hesitation. And I strangely found Jacob Levinsky as my ally. What are you thinking, Harry? Asked Pat Note as he approached. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Levinsky? Strange how he's our only ally now. Think about it. Maybe. Maybe nothing. Alder is days away from controlling everything. And we deal with Levinsky. He's going to want answers. All right, Sam Branson, I answered. Very good, said O'Neill. And another Levinsky operative. Well, McNally is part of Division 5. Levinsky and Alder allies? I asked, still looking outside. One of them hired the other's people said O'Neill, and then he froze. Incredible. What is it, John? I turned. When he didn't answer, I crossed the room. O'Neill had tears in his dark eyes. Jenna Belkin. Damn. Yeah, damn. They faked it. Why? No, John. I stepped closer. They, who? Who faked it? Alder? Levinsky? Uh, Jenna. I had a hyperventilated feeling like when I used to run competitively. My brow was tight. I didn't like what I had learned about Jenna and the paybacks, nor was I happy with Mark. I had mixed emotions, angry, but both astonished and grateful they were alive. The ice mountains on Triton formed strong thoughts in my head. The old man's words at the Sarazen repeated in my head. We were the waters of oblivion. Okay said O'Neill as he stood. The sound etchings. Components are not only complicated, they're huge. I need direct access to zip catacombs and extrapolators. First thing we have to do is slip out of here and Mars, I said, still shaking my head. I procured a conventional flight to Callisto. 
and then a barge back to Triton. I'm not sure we're even safe then. And now we have to find Mark and Jenna Belkin. I'm changing my plan. You haven't talked too much about the plan. No, I haven't. The main problem here is to prove two things. I'm convinced from Gerard and Buta that Alder was responsible for Nevis's slow death. Severinsen had villages, now deceased I might add, set that field energizer on a motion system. There was a man from the Bureau, Ron Tyson. Tyson? Tyson was one of my technical advisors 15 years ago. Well, he's dead now. Why am I not surprised? He installed the high energizer, but I don't think he knew why. We need to actually get to the villagers. Two of them figured it out. Severinsen has no idea. He thinks they're stupid villagers. No threat at all. Phil's downfall. Once he formulates a conclusion, he's so arrogant, he'll stick to it. O'Neill duplicated the CZIP data onto three pin disks. The disks were then extracted into a small, thin, pointed blue tube. Okay, gentlemen, time for your inoculations. It's just a matter of time before Severinsen heads out here, said Patno, rolling up his sleeve. Not here, John. You're not shooting me in the arse with that thing, are you? No, O'Neill grinned, and he pushed back Patno's thick gray hair. He located a spot just behind the left ear, about three centimeters from your upper lobe. And the same for me? No, you get it in the arse, quipped O'Neill, and I half believed him. Then he placed the pin disc below the bony protuberance in the back of my head. There, evidence secured. O'Neill had me insert his disc under his right thumbnail. Then I looked him in the eye. With all due respect, Phil will stop any ship coming out here. I know. We'll have Patino file a flight plan. An inaccurate flight plan. Exactly. Maybe we can't get Alda for the murder of Jenna Belkin because she wasn't killed. I still looked into his dark eyes. Look, she was in Africa, she knew about Nevis, and she knew she was a dead woman, so she and Mark faked their deaths. Yep, but as far as Alder and even Levinsky, neither one is sure she is dead or alive. Correct. And none of the three in the habitat are going to show their faces, lest they be killed. One of the Requindors rushed back up the hall. O'Neill spun around. What happened? You need to leave right away. Severinsen has four tracers heading toward Mons. The jolt in my stomach was overpowering. Yet O'Neill nodded as if the Requindor had just told him what was on the dessert menu. Implement Operation Grandor. What the hell is Operation Grandor? Trust me. Do we have a choice? No, you don't. We all rushed into the dining room. The two Requindors were gone. O'Neill's eyes met Vasquez as he stood. We're leaving. I will prepare the lift, said Vasquez. O'Neill shook hands with Vasquez. Thank you for all your help, Requindor. Good luck, John. I'll need it. Get the sanctuary praying. We will. Patton will trail us into the corridor. What now? John, I need you to voice file that flight plan on your zip now. Where to? Asked Patton as on foot we veered toward a silcoplast staircase with a huge portal span overlooking the caldera. Whiter hebons cast shadows over the walls as we entered the lift. Plan is already in place from Port 15, suborbit to Callisto, then back by barge to Triton. Have your tracer pilot aboard. Tell him you're going to meet him at the Matterhorn inside Station 32. If he needs droids, I'll get them credited. I want him to leave now. Well, do. 
O'Neill removed the C-zip data and looked up with a determination I thought I'd never witness again. We scurried down the stairs and crossed a glossy brown floor toward tall silver tubes surrounding the dark green doors. O'Neill spoke as we walked. Gentlemen, O'Neill used to address us that way in the bureau. Goosebumps erupted over my skin. We are headed deep into Mons, not to hide but to escape. Land tracer? asked Patno. O'Neill smiled as the descender doors opened. I hope you're in shape, John. Well, we're all donning T-suits and we're headed around the south rim, only a few kilometers to an old tram that will get us into a private dome 50 kilometers to the south. They can't monitor us, but we will need the tram T-suits. Once we're inside the dome, we'll be provided with a rover. Rover? How far do we go in that? I kept thinking something had happened to Angelique back on Triton. If we don't do it this way, he'll find us for sure. O'Neill programmed in several numbers and then swiped his zip over the panel. The descender dropped quickly. Getting off the planet is going to be tricky, but I'm still working on it. Use the ship I used to get here. O'Neill smiled in his zip beep. O'Neill. Yes. Come on. How come so quick? Okay. What happened? Looks like Phil is playing this tricky too. They shielded the tracer. Phil is landing as we speak. Can't get much closer. Patno put his hand on my shoulder. We're not out of here yet. I'll second that, said O'Neill, as we passed the ground level. O'Neill shut off his zip. Whether he is or he isn't, I'm going to assume Phil will be tracking us. I nodded as we penetrated several kilometers into the volcano cone. None of us said anything for another few minutes. I wondered if Severinsen would figure out what we had done. If all of our contacts remained silent, Severinsen would never know we were here, or at least until he found the tracer from Livingston. The car slowed, the doors opened, revealing a rock-carved stone station with five tunnels leading outward. Translucent white hebon globes dotted the igneous protrusions. O'Neill followed the blue and white signs and arrows pointing to Tunnel 4. According to O'Neill, the old tram was only a few hundred meters ahead. Just when I was feeling relaxed, the red security hebon started flashing. Run it, shouted O'Neill. Two heavy security doors slid across the tunnels. We sprinted ahead of Patno through the tram platform door. The door slid shut as we entered a larger area. Both O'Neill and I lunged back to the sealed door. Damn it! Guess Phil doesn't take any chances, said O'Neill as we tried to pry the door open. Patino pounded from the other side. O'Neill pulled out his pulser but did not fire at the door. I don't want to show an open door on their zip panels. Understood. The blue beam from his pulser cracked the rock and then the ledge glowed. The entire side of the ledge collapsed. I heard Patino calling from the opening. O'Neill yelled as he ran forward. It's still hot, John. I felt the heat with my extended palms as O'Neill kicked away some of the front rocks with his boots. I helped him pull back a larger, warm boulder which fell onto the slab. Patino's smiling face was visible through the hole in the ledge. John, you've got to get into shape. Well, that will never happen, he said, extending his hand. Come on, get me out of here. Patnall wiggled through the opening and steadied himself as we pulled him through. They may not know we're here and are shutting down everything as a precaution. The tram was several meters ahead now, stalled on the track in the tunnel opening. 
Sure hope so, answered O'Neill as he eyed a control panel to his left. I followed him to the panel. Certainly hope this isn't visually tied to any zip catacomb. I slid open the gray panel door. The power was motion relapsed, and O'Neill activated the window. The landscape depiction showed a bright line under the Martian desert, extending for 50 kilometers to the abandoned factory. Tram status. Inactive. Activate, said O'Neill, glancing back at the closed tunnel door. Nothing happened. O'Neill then typed on the screen and slowly looked up. Merkel. 42-6756. The window panel lights flashed and the inner hebons brightened inside the tram. Then the door slid open. The hell kind of code was that? From at least 30 years ago. O'Neill nodded. All override system had this code after the trade wars. They needed to move goods easily. He motioned us toward the tram. The only thing they will see on their zips is a power drain, but minimal. We filed inside the tram's lead car. For several minutes, O'Neill and I disengaged the car with a magnetic snap. A bright hebon soon shined along the concave track as we hummed forward. O'Neill was not sure how long we would have power, but when we looked up from the console, he produced the wide smile I had known for so many years. I checked the zip consoles and found they were still functional. I could monitor all scan frequencies. Nothing's going out. Understood. Tram is clear, according to the scan, said Pat No as we steadily rolled along. Good, replied O'Neill, opening the panel, housing the weapons and the T-suits. Getting off this planet is going to be tough, even if it's just at Phobos. But there are air brakes six kilometers ahead, once we get outside the Mons Cone. I figured, said O'Neill, dragging the wrinkled, teal-colored suits. I draped my suit over my thigh as I stared at the scan. It could take some time to find Phil's frequencies. O'Neill sat next to me, his lips pressed as he activated his own zip. What are you doing, John? He grinned. I have the frequencies Phil was using two weeks ago. Let's see if he's arrogant enough to be on the same channels. He inserted his zip into the tram zip port. Could take a few minutes. O'Neill stepped into his T-suit and lifted it into his arms. I stared at the blue digits rolling over the window as I pulled my own suit over my shoulders. All of us left the hoods and visors set back at the shoulders. Then the sound window warning dinged. There it is, three channels. We were less than a kilometer into the volcanic cone now. I pushed the zip. In a few seconds, a murky image crystallized into a crisp scene of several men near a curved console. Phil Severinsen, clad in an open white neckliner, that accentuated his gray hair, walked briskly around the console. All the emotions against Severinsen for booting me out of the bureau early came back to me now. This is Severinsen, he said, staring into the window. I want all units to commence sweep of Mons. He looked at the two men next to him. I know they're in there. An audio signal emanated from the console. Mr. Severinsen, go ahead. Excellent, said O'Neill. They bought into it. He's heading to Callisto and then Triton. I want Patton killed on sight. Whoa, said Patton Yes, sir. We have a third option. What's that? Asked O'Neill. Unload a fully charged pulsar on the bastard. I have no problem with that, said O'Neill as the air brake monitor sounded. We secured the T-suit hoods. Through the flexible silcoplast, Severinsen leaned toward another window. I want them killed on sight. Pat no turned to O'Neill. That means he's really afraid that we'll stop him and Alder. 
Exactly, answered O'Neill, and then he grinned widely. And he thinks he has us. In the window, I looked at the tram station, door still closed, near the ledge rubble. We were three kilometers out. They have no way to chase us below, and no way to track this tram. The only way is if they physically see the lead tram gone and reason it out. Then he'll send traces down along this line. But he has to have access to that, too. O'Neill stared at Severinsen. He's a son of a bitch, Harry. I checked. I could never find why he got you out. I shook my head. I could never figure that out either. Maybe he thought I had something on him or Alder. Did you? No. Unless it was something I was unaware of. O'Neill leaned over the console. Another hour and we'll be at the plant. John, keep monitoring his command frequency. Harry, watch the platform. And I'll track all intra-messages. Gentlemen, keep your fingers crossed. We peeled back the T-suits when we entered the half-lit, collapsed walls of the abandoned plant. From the lower tramway, we climbed the metal steps, corroded in some spots, under the indirect white light above. The place was hundreds of years old, and this section had once housed a bulky, technologically backward electrical generating facility. Severinsen will stop John's tracer, I said as we reached a dirty metal platform. Maybe. Perhaps he'll opt to track the vessel. He wrinkled his brows. I'm counting on him thinking he's clever. Which leaves us getting to Phobos. He nodded, but he had no quick answer. We walked along the platform and up a spiral stairway to a metal door above. O'Neill waved his C-zip along the door. Are we at ground level? Yes. O'Neill continued to watch his zip, and then he spoke. Juncture lock. Less than a minute later, a mechanical metal lock turned and the door opened. A short, odd-looking man with a white beard smiled, and then shook O'Neill's hand. I recognized him from the security detention area in Livingston. Rover's ready, Governor. I looked at Patino as he gawked. Gus Slater? Gus Slater, Inspector. Gus smiled, revealing a missing tooth. Harry, you're in for 15 years, Gus. If I recall, for stealing terrestrial vehicles, tracer, and some scam in the Whittemore Dome. You're pushing it, Harry. You always do. Rovers, and an interplanetary engine component. I remember the indictment. And you have another 13 years in the tank. Not no more. I just had him released. He got us the rover. Well, you can't trust him. Gus produced an annoying, high-pitched, huffy laugh. <laughs> It'll be two weeks before the relief ship gets out here. Very commendable, Gus. Well, I... He's being well paid. Of course. Where's the rover, Gus? He ain't exactly a rover. I told you. What is it? Tour bus of the early rovers. Oh, come on. Said O'Neill, grabbing him by the neckliner. I can send you back. Why are you dealing with this unzipped power drain? Hey, the thing made me go to the rough terrain. What about guidance? The best. And we stick to the plan, right, Gus? Yeah, if somebody finds us, I make a little trip into the countryside. Exactly. Okay, Gus, let's go. We're leaving here right now. What's that all about? Gus will contaminate the area if they get us. Desmond Turcotte will then get us out, or so it seems. Patno and I followed Gus and O'Neill down a similar metal staircase in a darkened area with cobwebs looped from the lower supports. What do you mean, so it seems? Let's just say we'll let Phil believe what he wants to believe. Gus pushed open the rusted metal dividing doors, and the brighter light hurt my eyes. 
The dust-covered green and yellow tour bus from Livingston was parked diagonally to the airlock doors. A long, green, translucent portal span lined the area. Wonderful, I said as Gus opened the bus door with a separator. Actually, these vehicles are quite durable. O'Neill stared at the bus, but I did not know what he was thinking. Then he gazed out the portal across the ruddy landscape. Gus Slater. Yo! Wash this crate down with a water glycol derivative. What? I ain't no cabin boy. Just shut up and do what I say or I'll have your ass on a barge to Caron. Gus mumbled and headed for the yellow cleaning hose, looped over a wall hook. O'Neill and I stared at each other. Then O'Neill spoke. We get off this planet. I'll be shocked. I was surprised that the bus moved so smoothly across the marginal terrain past the Tharsis bulge from Mars. For over an hour, I had stared across the rocks to the distant hills. Mark was an old friend, whom I saw as often as I could, but at the same time he lived his life from day to day, year to year, with a whole range of issues I would know nothing about. Jenna's behind-the-scenes approach to advancing her career rattled both her credibility as well as my own trust. Harry. I looked up and he smiled. Good news, according to O'Neill, is that Severinsen is baffled as to what happened to us. No one is talking. Good. They've searched the whole sanctuary. I'm not sure about that old tram. Let them. No sign of activity back at the plant, said O'Neill, looking at his zip as he moved down the aisle. I would think he might start scanning the surface. Phil is thinking conventional. Remember, for all this sake and for his own ego, he wants to find us. Thus, the wonder bus. O'Neill smiled. Again, getting off this planet is not going to be easy. I gripped the pole as we hit a rough spot. And Desmond Turcotte is simply going to whisk us off Mars. He has the power. Well, that's for damn sure. There's something in it for him or his business. O'Neill listened intently in his earpiece. His brow tightened. He's commenced the surface scans. Great. And what do we have, another 12 hours to Livingston? A little more than that, said O'Neill, glancing up at Gus and half smiling. Then his face tensed. It all comes down to odds. You know how the sweeps work. You sweep this planet in 11 hours at the one meter resolution level. I nodded. Right. Depending where he sweeps determines the odds. If he starts at Mons across from Tharsis, we're sunk, said O'Neill, stroking his chin. But nothing on the frequencies would indicate that they even know we're on Mons. John's flight plan is from port 15. Has he left yet? Patno looked down at his own zip. Another 20 minutes. Good, said O'Neill. He'll get out. They may track him later, but he'll get out. He balanced his C-zip on the forward seat. Uh-oh, said O'Neill, cupping the earpiece. Then he lifted the window. Look, Look at, at this, gentlemen. I steadied myself on Patno's shoulder. O'Neill's zip window was bright blue with several yellow sweeper blips over the Martian map. Looks almost like atmospheric traces. Traces? O'Neill spoke through gritted teeth. Severinsen went out in conjunction with the planetary sweeps. He pointed at our position on the map and then at the tracer. This one. We should hear from it very soon. Then we'd better find cover. One pulse of burst and Mr. Severinsen will have nothing to fear. My feelings exactly. He stood and hurried down the aisle. I could hear him from the rear. We're veering. What the hell? Get up, Gus. You don't like my driving? O'Neill grabbed the smaller man's shoulders and dragged him out of the seat. Hey! Shut up or I'll leave you outside in a tea suit. 
Yeah, right. Don't push me, Gus. I moved up front and stared at Gus into the side seat. O'Neill had a more detailed map of the area. The nearby hills had no caves or overhangs. O'Neill ordered the zip to find an area to shield the bus. Then he located the tracer 300 kilometers due north and 15 kilometers east. He figured we had less than 15 minutes before the scans would show the bus. The window showed a black and white view of taller peaks with numerous caverns. Problem is, the peaks are 40 minutes away. Well, we have to try. Agreed. Snap yourselves in. What about him? Asked Patnall, looking at Gus. Hopefully he'll fall out. We bounced, and I thought the bus would flip over in the billowing dust cloud we produced along the edge of a long hill. O'Neill fought the bus navigator as he maneuvered the bus past 80 kilometers per hour. I had just smiled at Gus, locked in with three safety shields at the rear, when the forward panel sounded. You take it, Harry, yelled O'Neill. I leaped and grabbed the side pole and then hit the panel button. Scans were beginning to trickle into the area. My stomach flooded as I looked up at O'Neill. He slowed the bus and shook his head. We have another 15 kilometers. I know, I said. Then he squinted and looked through the cleaner circles and the dusty-coated silcoplast portals. Wait. John, we're finished. No. He said, and I grinned again. Dust and sand cover this bus. Great observation, smart man. Gus still strapped in. O'Neill didn't even respond. Scans may not view us any different than the landscape. Heat is the only thing we have going against us. He stood and looked me in the eye and then pointed at the storage compartment. Then he nodded. Everyone get into a T-suit. Harry, prepare to shut down this vehicle. I thought the idea brilliant. Maybe I would have realized it, but we would be dead by then. O'Neill, even in retirement, was quick. Gus was the first one in line and took the folded pack to the rear. Within five minutes, we were all suited up, and I was decreasing pressure back into the reserves. Felt my suit air bulge, and then the temperature was comfortable. The scans were now at 50%, and the traces were only 20 kilometers due west. When I opened the bus doors, the inside temperature of minus 60 Celsius matched the hillside. Break out the launchers. He returned a smile from inside the face shield. Our troubles are just beginning. We have orbital scans to contend with. Harry, the people you work with day in and day out, people you're with, if you have any brains at all, you can figure them out. Janet and Mark, as pleasant as they were, they were always here and there, in different places. We only saw them when they wanted us to. I wish you were wrong, John. Patno leaned between us. I wish the hell we'd get to Livingston. Systems down. I said to O'Neill as Patno confirmed all the air was out of the bus. Okay, scan's approaching 40%. Livingston is seven hours away. O'Neill scraped his chin and nodded. Then he shut off the panel and looked outside. We should see the overpass. You mean as they pulse us? All frequencies off. I'm not taking any chances. I sat next to Patno, who rolled his eyes. I raised the optical viewer. The Martian desert was cut with rock shadows. Through the T-suit, I heard the traces rumble, even before I spotted their sculptured black wingspan above the darkened peaks. Three of them flew in a formation several hundred meters above the dusty basin bus shook and Gus dove under the rear seat. Although I trusted O'Neill's plan, my stomach still tightened with the anticipation of being vaporized in the desert. With the ascending thunder, I gripped the viewer and alternated glances at Patnode's watery blue eyes gazing skyward. 
Before the traces were directly overhead, I exhaled slowly and felt the tension leave my hands and arms. As I slumped slightly in the recliner, and the traces passed out of view. O'Neill leaned toward the front portal, and in the back of his visor panned the traces to the horizon. Then he raised his glove upward. He turned, and his sparkling eyes reminded me of how I was grateful for every day that I had worked for him. Frequencies on, he said through my earpieces. Good move, John. Can't destroy what you can't see. Pat Note smiled. Should we activate internal systems? Are you cold, John? I asked. As a matter of fact, I am, he said, peering outside. Harry, turn up the heat. Cobb, lining up with his old boss, John O'Neill, is propitious. Cobb gives O'Neill the facts, and they begin to understand what happened to Jenna Balkin, and it involves high-level people. And now the powerful Phil Severinsen is sending a ship to Mars after Cobb and O'Neill, and they must escape. This is Robert P. Fitton ending episode four and going to the conclusion of the Ice of Triton next time on Fitton on the Air. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.com dash pizzazz.com